How's about we write some more stories? How's about we tell some more tales? Gather round the fire, maybe read for just a while, and we'll listen to the stories unveiled. Oh, we'll see if we succeeded writing stories no one needed from suggestions that you shared. talk about the Oscars. Yes, hello. My name is Colby McHugh and welcome to Story Spotlights, a special series of s'more stories episodes in which I do deeper dives into specific stories and figure out what makes them worth consuming. And for my last two Story Spotlights, I talked about a comic book series and a song, so it felt right to jump into the medium of film for this one. So again, to start this particular episode, I want to talk about the Oscars and maybe award shows in general. In the film world, so much emphasis has been placed on the Academy Awards for 95 years, just five away from the big triple digits. Now, obviously, the world has shifted a lot since 1929 in ways that I won't even begin to unpack on this podcast, but a specific way that the film world has changed recently is ease of access. Almost anyone can make a movie these days. So what does that mean? Simply put, there's way more movies out now than back in 1929, which means that award shows like the Oscars, Golden Globes, SAG Awards, etc. have the much harder job of parsing through the sea of stuff to determine what the best films of each year are, and with more content out there, that means there are more opinions out there, which makes determining who is deserving of awards really difficult, and almost always someone's going to be upset about the choice, which is definitely not exclusive to the film world. Looking at you, the Grammys, uh, everyone is always pissed at the Grammys. To be fair, there's way more music out in the world than movies each year, so it's I feel like it's nearly impossible to reliably figure out the best music in a given 12 months. Now, I'm, I'm definitely not defending the Grammys. I'm just wondering if they really matter that much or if it's only Beyonce's rabid and kind of terrifying fans that care when, when she gets snubbed. She's one of the richest and most successful people on Earth. Beyonce is doing just fine. All this to say... Awards don't always line up with the public's access to what they might think is the best in a given year. More movies, again, equals more opinions, which has seen a pushback against a lot of the more prototypical Oscar movies. Which, when I mention an Oscar bait movie, you generally get an idea of what I mean. Drama, maybe a historical period piece, lots of talking, probably a passionate outburst here or there, or a really hot person making themselves look really not hot and then getting rewarded for it. Now, in the past few years, that has begun to change a bit. For example, let's look at the last few Best Picture winners, which illustrate the change has begun, but certainly hasn't taken hold completely yet. Last year, Coda won Best Picture, a family drama about living with deaf parents. The year before, Nomadland by Chloe Zhao, a drama about the American Midwest. Now, I'll be the first to admit, I have not seen either of these movies. Not that I don't want to. There's just so much stuff to consume out there, and frankly, these two seemed a little bit less exciting to me. I absolutely will watch these eventually, but I still feel pretty confident that they won't be my favorite movies from those years. Now, the year before Nomadland, Parasite by Bong Joon-ho represented the first real shift away from the Oscar bait type of movies. It's a thriller, straight up, that has a lot to say about a lot of things. Plus, it came from somewhere outside of America, which was huge. Now, I loved this movie, and yeah, it came out a few months before the pandemic hit, so there might not have been as many contenders to go up against it, but in my opinion, it was the best movie that year. Sure, 
Parasite winning Best Picture might have been in response to Green Book winning the year before, which was truly a joke. Not quite crash in 2006 levels of a joke, but not that far either. Since Parasite won, I've been eagerly waiting for that feeling again. The perfect Venn diagram of a film that is both highly regarded by the film world and one that personally resonated with me. Not that the opinions of others are everything, but it's nice to be validated in my weird tastes every once in a while. And with that, we arrive at the subject of this story spotlight. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Easily my favorite movie from last year, and one that has been cleaning up at the other award shows leading up to the Oscars coming up on March 12th. Before I dive deep into this insane film, I also want to make it clear that I probably won't even watch the Oscars this year, not out of a moral stand or anything, I just think it's such a boring ceremony, with the only real interesting stuff coming in the form of huge, gigantic, terrifying controversies like the Will Smith slap heard around the world or the Moonlight La La Land debacle, two of the most absolutely bonkers live television moments I've ever witnessed. Just crazy stuff. Stuff like that vastly overwhelms the ceremony itself, and it's clear they're getting desperate to bring people back. I'm not sure if I'll be back, but I'm still rooting for all my favorite performances and creators, though. That's for sure. And based on the current awards track record for everything, everywhere, all at once, it certainly seems like it's winning every award, everywhere. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. I won't, I won't finish that joke. You know what I mean? It's doing well, making it the best time to talk about this movie. And having rewatched Everything, Everywhere, All at Once at home last week, which is streaming for free on Showtime if you've got that, um, it just cemented my desire, no, my need to blab about this movie. I've... Now seen it three times in total, twice in theaters, and three times it has devastated me in the best way. Uh, I don't know if a movie has ever made me cry three times, so let's appreciate that first and foremost. Maybe it's better than therapy. I'm just kidding. Go to therapy. Now before I jump into the story, where I will be spoiling things in case you haven't seen it, let's give you some context for the people who put it all together. Coming from the minds of a duo that goes by the Daniels, better known as Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, Everything Everywhere All at Once is the second feature-length film that they've written and directed, the first being one of the most audacious debuts in recent memory with Swiss Army Man, a unique dramedy about a talking corpse played by a third Daniel, Daniel Radcliffe. And if you haven't seen Swiss Army Man, let my recommendation guide you forward. I love this movie. It takes an insane premise and injects so much heart and characterization that this journey is so much better and more interesting than a simple joke about a corpse being able to jet ski through water powered by its own farts, which happens in the very first scene. Yes, it's bonkers, but it has a real gentle soul that connects thematically to everything everywhere incredibly well. There's a lot of parallels between these two movies. And before their pivot into film, the Daniels cut their teeth like so many other talented directors in music videos. And their unique visual style and ability to think outside the box let them thrive in this world. Remember that inescapable song from 2013, Turned Down For What? Of course you do. How could you not? That song was everywhere, and the music video that accompanied it was the Daniels Breakout. Uh, the video also is actually starring Daniel Kwan, so if you watch it, you will see one of the directors just absolutely losing his mind. It's, it's an incredible video, for sure. Now, going back and watching that video, it's so cool to see all the threads and ideas that they use in their shift to filmmaking just a few years later. Also, 
that video's got over a billion views, <laughs> which is nuts. Uh, they've also done videos for the likes of Passion Pit, Foster the People, Joy Wave, The Shins, and Manchester Orchestra. Big shout out to Manchester. I went to high school with Andy Hall, who uh, absolutely rules and has a cameo at the end of Swiss Army Man, just a heads up. So with some context on the filmmakers, it's time to look at the stars of this movie because the story with them is just as interesting as their performances. Beginning with Michelle Yeoh, who was a legend in the 80s and the early 90s Hong Kong cinema, having starred alongside Jackie Chan himself in some of his most iconic action movies like the Supercop franchise. She was even in a Bond movie. Not not a good one, but she was in a Bond movie. <laughs> While her athleticism and stunt work got her into the industry, she's also a really talented actress. Just check out Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or Crazy Rich Asians. Crazy Rich Asians, that's a hard one to say. She's been great for decades, and yet, Everything Everywhere is her first lead role in a Hollywood movie. And in doing my research for this episode, I found out she wasn't even supposed to be the lead. They actually wanted Jackie Chan when initially plotting out the movie. Here's a great quote from the Daniels about this process from uh, The Hollywood Reporter. At first we were like, action movie, gonna star a dude. But we were having trouble figuring out the casting for the father figure, and one of us started wondering what happens if we take Michelle's character and flip it, and she becomes the protagonist. And the film just opened up in a completely different way. The directing partners cited the very strong women in their lives, uh, who they also say we're both also kind of dopey, gentle guys ourselves. Uh, and, as, and as soon as we switched it, we were like, oh, now the husband and wife characters are way more relatable. Why on earth didn't we write it this way from the get-go? And yeah, that's a great question. Why on earth didn't they write it this way from the get-go? The easy answer is that's not how writing works. Sure, they've got a great concept for a story, but once they got stuck, they pivoted and created this entirely new story for them to play with, one far more unique than another dude-centered action movie could be. Writing is all about finding the best way to tell a story, and that only comes with edits and revisions and rethinking things. So all the credit goes to the Daniels for realizing this as they were writing this movie. This is editing and revising is something that I'm currently working on with my uh, writing. It's it's really difficult, honestly. Uh, now every actor in this movie is fantastic, but I need to single out one more really quick, specifically because it meant so much to me personally. For many years of experience, being a fan of movies leads to being asked quite often what my favorite movie is, which is nearly an impossible question, but not wanting to disappoint anyone with my lack of a real answer, I used to fall back on the most reliable movie for me growing up, which was The Goonies, a film I've probably seen 30 times and still continue to love to this day. It stars tons of kids who would go on to further stardom like Josh Brolin, Corey Feldman, and Sean Astin, but not the energetic, high-pitched inventor kid who played Data. He, unfortunately, only really got one other significant role in the second Indiana Jones film from the year prior to The Goonies, Temple of Doom, playing Indy's sidekick Short Round. Uh, just for context, my family owned the Temple of Doom on VHS growing up, so I watched it way too young. That movie is pretty messed up outside of just being also racist uh, as well. Um, but again, this kid in that movie stole the show for me. He was just so good and unique and fun. The 90s were not kind to Ki Hui Kwan, who at the time went by Jonathan because of, you know, good old-fashioned typecasting and 
let's be honest, probably more racism. So he moved behind the camera for decades, becoming a stunt coordinator and assistant director and working on stuff like the original X-Men movie from 2000. And that's pretty much what he'd been up to until the Daniels reached out, asking him to make his return to acting for Everything Everywhere. He cited seeing crazy rich Asians as what made him feel inspired to act again and simply being wanted by filmmakers again. It's truly an inspiring comeback, one that hits really hard for me. And here's the first spoiler of this episode. He is what has made me cry three times out of three times. Uh, Also, quick shout outs to Stephanie Sue and the legendary James Hong as well, who are just great in this. Oh, yeah, and also Jamie Lee Curtis. I mean, come on. This is such a loaded cast. And if you've somehow gone this far without even knowing what Everything Everywhere All at Once is about, well, (laughs) I applaud you for listening anyway, but here's my best attempt. It's a multiversal sci-fi action comedy family drama about a middle-aged Chinese mother named Evelyn Wong operating a dying laundromat in the States with her husband, Waymond, and nearly estranged daughter, Joy, as they try to survive an audit by the IRS. Whew, okay, that's one sentence down. (laughs) Don't worry, here is where it gets uh, weird. During their meeting with the IRS, she's contacted by an alternate version of Waymond who explains the entire concept of the multiverse, connected realities that contain endless alternate versions of Evelyn, and that there is this terrifying villain known as Jobu Tabaki who is trying to bring it all down. Evelyn next learns that, thanks to some very cool future technology, she's able to access skills and traits from nearby alternate versions of herself known as verse jumping. Think of The Matrix when Keanu says, I know Kung Fu, after getting it downloaded into his head. That's kind of like verse jumping, just way less fun, because in order for someone to access those very specific abilities, they have to do something completely random to activate the ability. So through this concept, the film is able to employ some of its wildest moments and and weirdest moments and kind of gross moments sometimes as well, such as taking a bite of chapstick, peeing yourself, professing your love at the worst possible moment, and maybe most iconically, jumping ass first onto a phallic-shaped trophy just to get some sweet, sweet fight skills. (laughs) Yes. Evelyn finds out that Jobu Tabaki is none other than an alternate version of her daughter, Joy, who has grown too powerful and can shift between realities at will and has fully embraced nihilism. Nothing matters to her. So what follows is a journey of reflection, really awesome fight scenes, and monologues that absolutely rip my heart out of its chest. Honestly, kind of like Temple of Doom, actually. (laughs) Let's discuss the concept of multiverse stuff, because that's been all the rage for the last few years, thanks to Marvel utilizing it for their current phase of films, as well as plenty of TV shows dipping into the idea. Hell, even Riverdale has a multiverse. A a video game came out last year literally called Multiverses, starring LeBron James. Uh, The world has gone crazy for this concept, uh, one that's been used in comic books for decades, dating back to the Flash of Two Worlds storyline way back in 1961 that introduced Wally West to his Earth 2 counterpart, Jay Garrick, both of them the Flash, just in a different world. From there, comic books went nuts, allowing alternate versions of characters to pop up left and right in both Marvel and DC books, as well as other smaller publishers. It was a cheap concept that allowed for writers and artists to create unique storylines and new-ish characters for their stories. Thank you for allowing me to squeeze in some comic book history here. Again, 
this is my podcast, but thanks anyway. Nowadays, the multiverse isn't such a unique concept, and the more we get into the current phase of the MCU, the more I think people are realizing how difficult it is to get the multiverse idea right. Everything Everywhere, in my personal opinion, does it the best because of a few reasons. First, Alpha Waymond, the futuristic tech version of Waymond, explains the concept to Evelyn over the course of the first half of the story, so it doesn't feel immediately overwhelming for the viewer. We get bits and pieces of the puzzle, and by the time the third act rolls around, the concept feels like it makes sense. This is so important because by the time we're in the climax, nobody wants to be thinking about the logistics of how this is all happening. We want to just focus on the characters and their relationships to one another. Thankfully, that's exactly what we get. The second reason I think this movie does the multiverse well is that it lets itself get weird. This is, to me, a requirement. Whenever you introduce the idea of alternate versions of a character, you instantly get access to pretty much anything you can imagine. So it's boring if you don't take advantage of that. And on that note, I have two words. Hot dog fingers. <laughs> Not only do we get an alternate universe where everyone has hot dogs for fingers, but we also spend enough time in that universe to get a really genuinely sweet love story, which is honestly kind of like the thesis for this movie. Insane things happen constantly, but it has the characters and the soul to not be crushed under the weight of that insanity. Speaking of being crushed, I think now's a good time to talk about the monologue. Uh, and if you've seen this movie, you know what I mean. I mentioned it earlier, but Kihui Kwan's monologue speaking as multiple versions of Waymond genuinely feels like the climax of the movie for me. It's so pure and expresses feelings that I've never really experienced in a theater before. It's it's so great because these two very different versions of the same character are speaking different languages, but expressing the same sentiment. They're both a part of the same monologue. Alternate Waymond, who is suave and looks like a movie star, says this in Chinese. You think I'm weak, don't you? All those years ago when we first fell in love, your father would say I was too sweet for my own good. Maybe he was right. You tell me it's a cruel world and we're all running around in circles. I know that. I've been on this earth just as many days as you. When I choose to see the good side of things, I'm not being naive. It is strategic and necessary. It's how I've learned to survive through everything. I know you see yourself as a fighter. Well, I see myself as one too. This is how I fight. Later in the scene, Evelyn places one of Wayman's trademark googly eyes on her forehead, and when he asks what she's doing, she replies, learning to fight like you. Q tears, <laughs> as if I wasn't already crying. I'll let you hear my other favorite line from the monologue from the man himself. Words to live by. I know you're all fighting because you're scared and confused. I'm confused too. All day. I don't know what the heck is going on. But... Somehow, this feels like it's all my fault. The only thing I do know is that we have to be kind. Please, be kind. Especially when we don't know what's going on. Oh, it gets me every time. Now, I don't want to end the episode on such a sad yet powerful moment. This movie is way too fun for that, so I'll end by talking about the thing that everybody loves. Action. <clears throat> the Daniels have a flair for directing action that 
doesn't really look like anything else. Again, go back and watch the Turn Down For What video uh, for an early example of that style. For this movie, they partnered with a stunt crew they found on YouTube known as Marshall Club, uh, run by two self-taught brothers from Orange County who have their love of Hong Kong cinema plastered all over their videos. The brothers were also featured throughout the movie, most prominently during the uh, trophy uh, fight scene, you know, the one where they both fight with trophies visibly sticking out of their ass. Uh, I've never seen anything like it, I'll say that. Uh, Between the cinematography and visual effects, which were mostly practical, the fight scenes have a playfulness and a reverence for classic martial arts movies, but again, also allow the weirdness of the entire movie to bleed into them. Yes, there is a scene where a dildo is used like nunchucks, and it's great. Go check out Marshall Club on YouTube for some of their other videos and behind-the-scenes stuff. It's, It's really cool, plus they just seem like good dudes. I don't know. Now, before I finish up, I'll give you a quick rundown of the Oscars that it's nominated for, since that is coming up soon. Uh, There are 11 nominations, which is nuts. So, Best Original Screenplay, Best Original Score, Best Original Song, Best Film, Best Director, Best Lead Actress, Best Supporting Actress twice, Best Supporting Actor, Best Costume Design, and Best Editing. I hope they win every single one, but specifically, I'm rooting for my guy, Ki-Hui Kwan. He deserves this. What else is there? I don't know. I think I've gotten all my thoughts out. Thank you for letting me rant. And if I haven't convinced you that everything everywhere all at once is worth watching, then I failed you. But it's not for a lack of trying. Um, I'm sure I'll continue to watch this movie over the years and maybe I'll watch the Oscars. Just maybe. Stay tuned for some more episodes coming up. I've got a lot in the works with some great guests and great stories to hear from. Until then, thanks for listening and stay toasty out there. S'more Stories is brought to you by the Indiesaurus Podcast Network, which is home to not just one great podcast, but tons of them. Maybe you're in the mood for a, let's say, a Hamtaro watch-along podcast. How about a show that's doing a detailed deep dive into the famed Left Behind book series? Well, you're in luck with Ham Radio and I Survived the Rapture, just two of the many great shows on the Indiesaurus Podcast Network. And oh yeah, The Cellar Dwellers is on there too. Follow us on Instagram at Pod or Colby McHugh. I'll reach out on there for topics periodically, so be sure to submit your best and weirdest. And if you want to follow along with the episodes, feel free to send any stories you've written to s'morestoriespod at gmail.com. Whether you want notes or just someone to put eyes on a story, send it my way. Music and lyrics by Evan McHugh, whose great songs can be found anywhere and everywhere. Go buy them. Logo design by Brittany Wyland, whose work can be found at mess.and.magic on Instagram. Thanks for listening, everyone, and stay toasty.